Welcome to Ejil, the podcast. The 1990s were bubbling with developments that energized the field of international law. For the first time since the Second World War, international criminal tribunals were created. States used force in the name of human rights, and a former head of state was denied immunity because he was accused of torture. Many of these developments have since seen a slowdown or outright backlash, perhaps because Western leaders' vision of a new world order was in fact not globally shared. But one initiative of the 1990s has gone from strength to strength, perhaps precisely because it challenged this putative new world order. On the 7th and 8th of March 1997, scholars gathered for a conference to discuss how international law privileged European and North American voices, and how the structures of international law reproduced relations of hierarchy and discrimination. That conference was the beginning of what has become known as TWIL, Third World Approaches to International Law. TWIL has been so successful that it is now generally accepted as one approach to study international law, alongside, for instance, doctrinal, feminist and critical approaches. The recent decision of the International Court of Justice to award provisional measures that South Africa had requested to protect the people of Gaza suggests that the TWIL sensibility may also have begun to resonate in the highest judicial organ of the United Nations. In this episode of EGIL the Podcast, we speak with one of TWIL's founding fathers, Professor Anthony Engi, Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore and University of Utah. Welcome, Tony. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for that very generous introduction. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Tony has published many significant works, but the occasion for this podcast is his foreword in the first issue of the European Journal of International Law in 2023, titled Rethinking International Law, a TWIL Retrospective. With us too are three scholars who wrote afterwards to his foreword. Ratna Kapoor, professor at Queen Mary University of London. Hi Sarah, great to be here. And Andreas von Arnau, professor at the University of Kiel. Hey Sarah, it's great to join you. Wonderful. And finally, last but not least, Arnold Becker-Lorca, professor at the European University Institute. Hi Sarah, hi everyone. So, as you may have understood by now, my name is Sarah, Sarah Nouwen. I'm an editor-in-chief of the European Journal of International Law. The foreword and afterwards are too rich to summarize. We are using them here as a starting point for a conversation about TWIL, its strengths and some of the criticisms that have been leveled against it, including in a prominent recent article by Nas Mordirzida. If this conversation whets your appetite, read the articles. They're freely accessible online. Tony, let's start ambitiously. Let's try to start with the essence. In your foreword, you describe how TWIL scholarship has developed over the generations. And some people even speak of TWIL 1, TWIL 2, TWIL 3, TWIL 4. What connects TWIL? What is the essence of TWIL? Well, Sarah, I think uh, we can point to a few assertions or propositions or hypotheses about international law, which I think... uh, run through all the different generations of TWIL. So the first would be that uh, international law was profoundly shaped by the colonial encounter. 
Colonialism was not incidental to international law as the conventional history would have it. Colonialism was central to the formation of international law. Uh, the second point might be that uh, Wales scholars are intent on rethinking international law from the perspective of the colonized and their, uh, you could say, the people who have followed, uh, the people who are no longer the people of colonized countries but developing countries. How would international law uh, be rethought if we saw it from their perspective? Uh, the third question, and this relates very much to your comment about uh, the South Africa versus Israel uh, decision, is the question of can international law be used by the people of the third world to pursue the interests of the third world? And that becomes a complicated issue if we consider the first point I made, which is that international law was shaped by the colonial encounter. Uh, and the fourth point would be uh, that uh, colonialism uh, is something that is generally regarded as having ended, but Twelve scholars are suspicious about that claim, and Twelve scholars uh, are intent on identifying the different ways in which colonialism or imperialism might reproduce itself in a supposedly post-imperial world. So I would say those are some of the fundamental themes that uh, you unite uh, the Twale scholars of different generations. Yes, and as you show in your foreword, there's an incredibly rich literature now that, that shows those themes. And my, my question then becomes, now Twale has been so successful, how does it stay fresh? Because there's, of course, a risk that we kind of know so well now what Twale's preoccupations are, and that when a reader sees a Twale article, they think, okay, it's going to be imperialism that's the problem. It's going <laughs> yes. to be neocolonialism that's going to be the continued problem. So how how can, or what's your also advice for people who um, aim to continue in the Twale tradition? How can they make sure that their scholarship stays fresh? So I'd like to uh, imagine that in my uh, article, I also pointed to the work of the next generation of Twale scholars who are looking at the issue of imperialism, I think, in a much more sophisticated and refined way. So I think that's one point. Imperialism continues to be an important theme, and we need to understand how it operates and the ongoing legacies of imperialism and how it is reproduced in the current setting. But there's another dimension of Twale, which is how do we think of alternatives? How do we construct alternative systems, better systems. And I do feel that those better systems are required in a world that is deeply in crisis at a number of different levels. The other thing I'd like to say is that I don't feel that um, Twale is an end in itself. In other words, at least as far as I'm concerned, it is not a case of saying we have to somehow keep Twale going. <laughs> um, my argument is, if 12 analytical tools and perspectives no longer serve a purpose, then they should be dispensed with, and we must find something better. But uh, you know, something like the current uh, crisis uh, in the Middle East, uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, for example, is a situation which can be viewed, I think, uh, very insightfully through the lenses and perspectives developed by 12. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Tony, uh, but I'd like to also add to that. And I think Twail has been around for a while, but it's constantly been modified. It's constantly been moving in different directions and constantly also been fed by other critical theories, such as, you know, critical race theory or post-colonial feminism. And that makes it, it 
generative. And today, as you just mentioned, in the context of the um, the ongoing you know case of of, of a plausible genocide in in Gaza, is highly generative moment for Twill and Twill scholars in two ways. One is, of course, that it's entering the institutions in a way and making themselves front and center, as we saw in the ICJ case. But also, it's affording greater visibility to Twill and the fact that. Whole, uh, scholars from all over the world feel it's a safe umbrella under which to have debates and dialogue where spaces are in fact closing down in, in other universities and places in the global north um, and also provides a space where we can have a, an inclusive and, and extremely dynamic dialogue about what's going on uh, in the Middle East at the moment. Thank you, Ratna. So Tony, in your um, description of what is the essence of Twill, there was both a kind of substantive aspect and a more perspectival aspect. So we we have the substantive preoccupations, but also it's about this sensibility towards how the global South encounters international law. And Andreas, I was intrigued by your afterward in the sense that you were very, um, you, you really explicitly engaged with Tony's uh, part of the foreword that focuses on the question of reparations. And you, you explore then legal foundations for reparations for colonial expropriation by countering the main arguments that are often raised against demands for reparations from the global south. So you're a real ally. Uh, you say you want to make a contribution to a cause that you share with Twill, but you explicitly state, even in the abstract, I'm not a Twill scholar. And is this like supporting feminism without being a feminist? And what makes a Twill scholar in your eyes? When is somebody a Twill scholar? Is it an approach? Is it an identity? Does one need to have a membership card? <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for this um, thought-provoking question. I mean, um, my reason for writing that I'm not a, I not, don't consider myself a Twill scholar this was actually twofold. One is simply biographical. I mean, it was steeped in the German tradition of international law, so with constitutionalism looming large and so on. And so biographically, I only later came into contact with critical approaches to international law in general and Twill in particular. So I also attest in, the, in my afterward to that personal learning curve. And honestly, I don't know in this trajectory of mine where I'm standing at this moment. So that's one thing. But you may become one. I may become one, might be, but that's, this relates again to the actually the essence of your question. It's also kind of perhaps a question of identity. So twail, I mean, the A in twail is approaches. So basically, it should be about approaches only and whoever actually chooses an approach that is comes within the broader canvas of twail should be considered a twailer. But then there are those, of course, and I cannot ignore this, um, for whom this approach cannot be actually separated from a lived-in experience. And this is what you pointed at, actually. Some 20-odd years ago, I wrote a piece in German on feminist theories of international law. And it was probably not a really good paper, but there was one kind of reaction to it, which said a man doesn't have the lived-in experience of a woman and should never actually um, write about feminist theories in international law. And so I have to respect these positions. And so I didn't want to also um, self-identify me in a way of a cultural appropriation. 
So I can't help but here I have to hear Ratna on this point as one of <laughs> the, the, the well-known feminist scholar in our group. Well, the fact is there's no one feminist position. There are many feminist positions. That one you've decided may be one, but it's not uh, the position that you need to sort of listen to. There, there are, you know, many other positions which would never argue that, that, that you cannot speak on that because you're a man. You cannot speak on feminism because you're a man. And, and Tony, what is your view on identity, twill approaches, who belongs to twill and who hands out a membership card? We made a point of uh, not developing a membership system. <laughs> and many of our uh, colleagues who've done extraordinarily important twill work and who regard themselves as twillers are from the West. And that has historically also been the case. And so uh, I think uh, Andreas uh, points to this. Uh, it is third world approaches to international law. Now, certainly, uh, different people, differently situated, have their own ways of articulating their lived experiences. But I suppose, uh, from the point of view of uh, Western scholars, it's also a way of understanding how the West, in a sense, was created through its interaction with the non-Western world. And so I don't want this idea of a sort of pure third world identity that we must all comply with, somehow dictating who's inside and outside. And I'm really grateful to people like Andreas uh, for the allies of Twail, you know, people who haven't really uh, perhaps uh, seen themselves as member, members of Twail, but who've taken an interest in Twail and have engaged with Twail and have contributed towards Twail. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, you know, that's my rough uh, position. So the big tent is, is still open for many to join? As far as I'm concerned. So there's another... Uh, side to this question, and that is one of the points on which Twill has been challenged, including in this prominent recent article by Naz Mordirzida, is actually that Twill is concerned with the third world, but that most the most influential Twill scholars have spoken from or still speak from, in the sense that that's where they're based, the, the first world. And as Tony pointed out in his foreword, ironically, the conference that gave rise to Twill was organized at Harvard, and still very many Twill events take place in the global north. So here we get to this point that Andreas mentioned about the lived experiences. Can one um, talk about lived experiences of people in the third world if one is a scholar in the global north? Um, I'm, I'm interested in everybody's view on this dilemma. Arnulf, you've been quiet. May I invite you first? Let me briefly repeat the idea that if TWIL is a, an approach, it is the approach that uh, recognizes, as Tony mentioned, uh, the way in which colonial experiences and the colonial encounter shaped international law. And secondly, from, from that insight, understanding that a post-colonial international law has not resolved that question, that that question should be um, um, interrogated uh, as we encounter new new subjects in international law. So from that point of view, it's, it's, it's an approach open to everyone. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't require a, a card or, or a geopolitical uh, or geographical location. But what it requires is certain empathy with those experiences. And again, I think that is also open to everyone. Now, the, the more specific criticism of who is doing it based in the North or the South, 
I find that um, uh, a very, very problematic critique because it does not understand the field in which international law operates as a field that is structured by power relations that actually recognize a core and a periphery or a West and a non-West. And um, historically, the most important figures in 12, 1, 2, 3, 4 have been either geopolitically or 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 ideologically uh, connected to the inside and have been interested in understanding colonial origins and legacies, but have been uh, professionally uh, always attached to, let's say, the, the South, but have professionally lived in the North, from Bejawi to Alvarez to, I don't know, the indigenous uh, leaders who in the 17th, 16th, 17th century went to Spain to present a claim to the, to, to the king. So, so the fact that they are in the North, it only explains uh, their awareness of where the power relations lie. So that's why I don't think we should uh, give too much, too much uh, uh, emphasis to, to, to professional geopolitical locations. Well, uh, thanks for that, Arnav. Uh, I found that very helpful. And uh, just to go back to uh, what I suggested in terms of uh, some of the basic themes of TWAIL, different people are situated in different places in relation to those themes. So uh, we don't all necessarily have to focus on the lived experience of peoples of the third world. We could do a critique of Western structures themselves. And I think this notion about uh, the lived experience of people in the third world is uh, seen by Twail more as a a problem, an issue that needs to be engaged with because there's this overarching question of who speaks for international law. The other thing uh, I think that needs to be taken into account in this uh, whole uh, situation is an understanding of the politics of legal scholarship and the places in which people's work acquires recognition and uh, gets distributed. Now, so there were so many prominent Twail scholars who worked in the third world. Uh, you know, R.P. Anand spent pretty much a, a large part of his career in India. You know, uh, my, my friend, brilliant, wonderful scholar, B.S. Chimney, he spent his entire career in India. But the complication has been that his work uh, was given the significance it really deserved only in more recent times when it was disseminated in the West through the publishing, uh, you could say, avenues and venues of the West. The other thing I would say is that, well, I'm, I'm speaking here from Singapore. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm teaching in Asia and many of my projects actually involve Asian law schools and I'm deeply engaged with them. And uh, what I find is that the people in those law schools instantly recognize TWAIL because TWAIL isn't a construction on the part of those people who were at Harvard at that conference, a creation which was then reintroduced to the third world. It is already there in the third world. But as Ratna said, the work we have done, uh, TWAIL too, because we were fortunate enough to get the exposure to these centers of power, is that we've hopefully given those people the confidence to actually develop their ideas and feel that they belong to a tradition. And we've hopefully developed various ways in which their work can get the appreciation it deserves. And, you know, 
James Gatti is doing an astonishing job with Afronomics, for example. So these are just some of the things I would say in response. Yes, I think uh, I have only a couple of points to add to that, Tony. I think that you're absolutely right. I Twail has become a magnet for scholars all over the world who feel that their scholarship and writing now have a place to be both presented, even published, and discussed. And this is, and that we have this vast repository of knowledge and experiences from the global south that finds space in Twail. Uh, and at the same time, and I think you make this uh, point very clearly, Tony, in your in your perspective, is that it's impossible to understand now international law or human rights without a twill perspective. And it provides students and scholars in the field a grounding and a more informed understanding of what actually is the work that international law and human rights have been doing in relation to the other and in relation to the global south. So we cannot do without it, right? And it is spreading. And I think the, the, the other point, which I just want to build on what Tony mentioned, is that, you know, it does offer space for intellectuals where they don't even have uh, perhaps that space in their home, in their own homes. For example, I'm thinking of even Gaza, where all the universities have been destroyed. There's a space now that's empathetic and compassionate to listen to this voice, to receive the scholarship from the intellectuals, say in Palestine, and ensure that in real time that their stories are not annihilated, as has been the experience of the subaltern in the past. And I think that's invaluable. Could there be a tension between the two elements of the, the theme, Stoney, that you began with, what holds Twill together? On the one hand, um, certain key insights, and we know those insights, and these insights remain relevant for international law and have really yeah, shaped and changed how also international lawyers in the West see how international law was created. Um, and on the other hand, the openness to, as Ratner referred to, the subaltern voices, people who are currently in, in the periphery in particular situations, in the sense that for the openness to those voices and experiences, one has to be entirely open to what they are currently experiencing, which need not be always exactly what compatible with the insights we already had from Twill. One uh, interpretation of what you're saying is the voices uh, may express ideas, principles, visions, uh, which in many respects might be seen as undermining human dignity. And so that's something else I think I tried to address in my, uh, in my uh, earlier in my book and also my foreword, which is that we cannot be... Uh, we cannot be accepting of visions which are themselves excluding and oppressive. And so that is why Twail too, in particular has made a point of criticizing the third world state and doing so very fiercely. Uh, because we don't feel that simply because it is the third world state that we must just accept whatever it does, even though the third world state is so important for the protection of human dignity. So you're quite right, Sarah, in that regard, there is a tension. And I'm not sure they can be resolved. There's no easy principle. Um, it is like another great tension of Twail, which is this question of, can an international law forged out of imperialism be used 
by those who were victims of that law. And all I can say here is that as a 12 scholar, I live with those tensions. Uh, just as, you know, for a Western scholar, a Western scholar would live with the tensions of, is international law really law? So I can see Andreas wanting to say something. So Andreas, please take over. Yeah, thank you. So I was wondering whether these tensions are not actually exactly that what um, actually guarantees that Twayer stays fresh, because we always have to adapt to the changing, to the reproduction of means and methods of imperialism and semi-colonialism, and also these tensions between the third world state and the people, and also the transformative process of using international law to overcome the inbuilt exclusionary forces of international national law. So I think it's a process. And so this actually guarantees that dealing with this process um, helps trail staying fresh. Okay, so we embrace the tension, we recognize its productive forces. And on that note, I wanted to go back to Ratna, because in her afterward, or in your afterward, Ratna, you engage with the aspect of Tony's forward that engages with human rights and twill. And you argue that twill doesn't is not only a very useful diagnostic instrument, but also uh, always has had this revolutionary element. And one of the things that some people have argued, I find twill so useful to see all the problems of the world. I, twill opens my eyes, but it doesn't tell me what to do next. And so I wondered, Ratna, what is next? What is the revolution that you in your afterward propagate? Yes, so I, I think about revolution in, you know, not in terms of, you know, overthrow the West, nothing like that. I think about it, I think of Twill as this revolutionary project in two ways. First, also, not only in terms of how it's provincialized and really destabilized dominant, you know, Eurocentric accounts of history and international law, the history of international law and human rights, as Tony has so clearly mapped out uh, in both his book as well as in the twill uh, perspectives that he's presented. But also I see twill as an epistemological inquiry. So twill really does take seriously the foundational critique of international law and human rights and explore some of the revolutionary or transformative uh, possibilities that may be found in alternative non-liberal registers or non-liberal epistemes. And I think it's really important or critical to attend to this in the aftermath of critique. So we're not just left, you know, hanging. Um, uh, it, it, otherwise, there's a tendency, certainly even uh, in some twill scholarship to really resubmit to some of the coercive logics of human rights and, you know, the liberal script that it sustains and then re-embracing some kind of universalism, albeit, you know, one that's been restructured. So it is crucial to think about um, uh, alternative non-liberal epistemologies. And that doesn't mean abandoning international law or human rights. You have to engage with both primarily, not because they're, they're arenas of transformation or change, but primarily because they are arenas of power. And so we can't, we can't afford to disengage with them. They must be engaged. But at the same time, there is 
a sort of now scholarship that engages with alternative epistemes, uh, epistemes and the futurity of international law and human rights in such arrangements. It's visible in some of the work that's emerging, say, in, in environment environmental law, you know, an indigenous consciousness and the practice, the practices with nature and, and subsistence, the idea of a sub, subaltern consciousness, which is emerging in relation to the Palestinian amongst others and an international legal subalterneity. And there's also been these alternative prescriptions of subjectivity and, and revolution that been articulated by post-colonial scholars in relation to the Islamic veil bans uh, and mandates. Uh, all of these trove formulations really are infused with insights from critical uh, projects and that renders the, the TWAIL project, in fact, dynamic. It lends dynamism to TWAIL rather than it becoming just a recursive project. So Arnulf, in your afterword, you actually argue that TWAIL has been so successful that it has become part of the mainstream, but it should now give rise to other critical approaches that shine light on third world experiences of international law. Why not stick to TWIL? Why do we need an alternative? So let me go back to, to something that Tony mentioned or we were discussing at the very beginning. So the idea that maybe the insights are no longer helpful and we should look for something different. I don't think that was my argument in the, in the afterward because I don't think that so my, my point about 12 is mainstream was a point not only in terms of um, recognizing the, the incredible rise of 12, but also recognizing the role that, that the insights uh, play and should play in contemporary international law. And in that sense, the argument is not about overcoming. It is, the argument is about the need of always recognizing and remembering that insight as a starting point. So colonial origins and colonial legacies should be as important as sources of international law or whatever your favorite doctrine is. And, and it's basically from that starting point that uh, my, my, my idea was that if that is the, the starting point that should be shared by the profession, uh, then that opens... Uh, critical uh, avenues in that could go another direction that then we can decide if they're 12 or beyond 12, but basically would, uh, in my case, um, uh, explore other uh, lived experiences of the peoples of the third world, which would be the experience like we have been discussed and Radna mentioned, what happens when the ICJ uh, uh, not only uh, listens to the voice, but also articulates the voice of of peoples of the third world. And I think that there is a long history. So we may think that that is unprecedented, but if we focus on this other lived experience, so the ex lived experience of engagement and at sometimes resistance and uh, moreover at sometimes successful resistance, I think there is another uh, parallel history to tell um, and the relevance and I would go back to of course of determination the the weakening and replacement of the standard of civilization with a formal standard of statehood etc and the, the 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 reason to remember this long durée or longer history is that we might learn um, tactics and strategies that emerge from that 
history that then again should be part of the canon of every international lawyer. So the the flip side of this story is perhaps referenced in Andreas's afterward, in the sense of you arguing, Arnolf, uh, some voices of the Global South have been heard in mainstream international law and have made a difference. And Andreas's argument is, yes, um, the mainstream argument of international law has often rejected claims to reparations, but there have always been voices in the global north that said that the mainstream argument was unjust and there should be there are alternative ways of thinking about this. So neither the south nor the global north is a monolith. Andreas, what does your argument mean for a movement such as Twill? What are the implications? What I think is, and that's also stated in my article, um, what I think is it's understandable that if you really want to put out a challenge, you need an address for this challenge. And so a point of using othering techniques and generalization are part of the struggle. And um, But on the other hand, somehow, of course, if you always speak of the Western liberal tradition, um, you somehow strengthen a specific brand of Western legal thinking, which is... From a German perspective, I would say it's Anglo-American liberalism, and um, this becomes a dominant narrative. And the other voices, if uh, there's this brilliant, agile um, series of the European traditions, actually, in international law, with people as diverse as Georges Sell or Walter Schücking, who's the namesake of my institute, so um, who contributed differently to international law than focusing on, let's say, individualism and property. And taking up also these ideas of collectivity, solidarity, and common goods is something, I think, which can enrich the discussion and make new allies for Twail. And I think we've come a long way already, as you pointed to the ICJ provisional measures and um, also what Arnulf, I think, wrote in his afterward. It's kind of mainstream, and so the pressure is now on the apologists of power ever more than it was before. And so I think that's a great success, and we should continue on that avenue. Thanks very much for that, Andreas. Uh, so uh, just a couple of comments. Uh, I feel somewhat disoriented by the fact that Twail is now thought of as mainstream. I mean, I felt uh, somehow comfortable in the margins, uh, in some peculiar and perverse way. So uh, the idea that Twail is now the mainstream uh, makes me feel just a little bit uncomfortable, and I'm not sure that I'm adapted to this uh, new condition very well. Um, in terms of Andres's comments, I agree, and well, I agree completely, and I certainly welcome that approach. And that has always been the case. I mean, if we look at Twail scholars in the past, you know, not only David Kennedy, uh, the brilliant David Kennedy, but my uh, teacher at Monash, uh, Professor uh, Christopher Wiedemantri, he was a master of the Western traditions. Uh, he was a master of civil law because there's Roma Dutch law in Sri Lanka. And he was a master of the common law as well. And so it was that full experience and the whole range of ideas that were available from thinkers from everywhere that really helps shape intellectual personality and approach. So uh, I, this is simply a long way of saying that I uh, welcome and agree with what Andreas has said. So it also really resonates with, I think, one key argument of your foreword, namely that Twill should be seen as a cosmopolitan project. 
and may I quote you here, I would argue the legal technologies of dispossession that were developed and applied to the third world are now globalized. That is, they now affect the lives of people in the West itself, and as such contribute to the social dislocation, insecurity, and inequality affecting communities in the rich first world countries themselves. Twill cannot be considered to be purely about the third world. It is Twill that offers an alternative, universal vision of international law and justice. Unquote. So I think your statement here really shows the, the openness of Twill. It's the, it's the big embrace of an, an empathy with all those suffering from injustice. But one question that arises is, um, you know, is, are the boundaries still clear with, for instance, the concerns of critical approaches or Marxist approaches, or doesn't that actually matter? Um, is it okay if all these flow in one big concern about human suffering? But just to, to paraphrase Hannah Arendt, um, there, there may be a risk that if everything becomes twill, nothing is clearly twill anymore. Okay, um, a lot to deal with. Um, so the first point, I mean, I find it very interesting if we look at current developments in foreign investment law, how the uh, critiques of foreign investment law that were initially articulated by the South are now exactly the critiques that are being articulated by people in the North. And so that's what I mean when I say that uh, many of the technologies developed in the South are now being experienced uh, in the North as well, giving rise to different forms of marginalization and so forth. Uh, the whole question of whether uh, everything... Uh, becomes twill. So here, and perhaps this is very unsatisfactory, here I would say that I am not in favor of some kind of idea of a pure theory. I see twill as a set of technologies, a set of tools that are available to people who are studying these large themes of injustice or poverty uh, or marginalization. And they should feel uh, able to select whatever tools they feel would assist them in their particular project. Uh, when I say that TWAIL is a cosmopolitan project, uh, in a way I'm referring to exactly what uh, Andreas has pointed out, which is that the whole idea of cosmopolitanism, after all, is how we achieve global justice. And if that is the case, then we have to take into account the insights of TWAIL in terms of the ways in which the efforts to create global justice have been impeded by imperialism. Now, I feel very reluctant to talk about cosmopolitanism because after all, that is the great German invention after the Greeks. It's one of Germany's great export industries. It's a bit like BMW perhaps. Uh, so I, I'll defer to Andreas's expertise on that. But that's what I mean by cosmopolitanism. How can we all unite from wherever we are to actually make good on this goal? Uh, which is supposed to inspire international law, the goal of bringing about global justice, a problematic term, but one I'll still use. Uh, I would like to comment on, on some uh, continuity between Andreas and Tony's. So the idea would be that some, someone like Sell or Shuking would be um, closer to the idea that there is a universal or global justice in, in Tony's terms to which we could aspire, regardless of these being part of the of the European tradition, and and uh, others from the global south be, being from other traditions. So I think that that it, it, I would agree with that um, um, from a 
logical point of view, if you want, or conceptual point of view. But I think that the real question is historically uh, how that has operated. So when Cell thinks that his idea of the cosmopolitan, I was just by by chance uh, reading Cell yesterday, and uh, uh, a very obscure piece on uh, compensation of expropriation of of land in Romania. And he was making the case for unequal treatment because if foreign investors are subject to the same rules that nationals, but those rules are inferior to the minimum standard, international law protects them. So that sounds a very, very hot topic today. But my, my point uh, using that example is that it turns out, and again, they, this, this is on the basis of approach rather than identity. I think that the challenge is to look for the approach that is articulating certain interests. And then we can say who's benefiting and who is being harmed by these uh, arguments. And, and I think there I still would go beyond Tony now, now in the sense that uh, um, most of the time, the language of cosmopolitanism, global justice, as articulated from the North, uh, is captured by the North-South division because, as my cell example, is in, in the cosmopolitan argument there was benefiting the foreign investor uh, who was expropriated in Romania. So, so and this goes back to Bejawi, uh, if we went 12-1, the idea that uh, be careful of common heritage of humankind because it is great invocation of the universal, but then when it's translated into a concrete mechanism, we see that what is what is shared is an in interest of the North, and what is subject to sovereignty is again in the interest of the North and the detriment of the South. For me, I think that Twill is not striving to be either mainstream or becoming another meta theory or providing, you know, in its counter narratives, providing a, a sort of a, a, a sort of a stable narrative, counter narrative of the history of international law, nor is it one of many international law projects. I think the purpose of TWIL and its significance is what can, say, the European Society of International Law or the American Society of International Law or other international legal projects learn from TWIL and really learn something that they didn't know before they started the conversation and be changed by it in the process? And I think I use the example of, you know, something like racial capitalism as I, uh, imperialism, for example, uh, the bare bones, bare bones definition of imperialism is, is racial capitalism. So what have these other mainstream dominant uh, international law projects actually learned from uh, Twill's analysis uh, on, on racial capitalism and its relationship with imperialism? Thank you, Ratna. I think that's a very inspiring note to end on because I hope that this podcast has contributed to that aim and at least opening the world and opening the thinking uh, of Twill and enticing everybody to go to the website, type in Tony Angie Forward in Google, uh, Egil Forward, and you'll find the forward and then type in afterwards and you will find three magnificent afterwards to Tony's Tony Angie's magnificent forward. So thank you, Tony, Ratna, Arnolf, and Andreas for this conversation. 
Thank you, listener, for joining us. Thank you, Jamie Morris, for taking care of the technical side of this recording. And to the phenomenal Annie Brenner for managing to get us all together for this podcast, which is not an easy task with all the different time zones involved. For more EGIL podcasts, visit egiltalk.org and egil.org.